song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Jim. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting episode today, Dave. Oh, you know it, Nick, as always. This week, we're going to be talking about slobs versus snobs movies, which is, of course, a natural extension of last week's topic, Jim Cornette, who kind of is the quintessential wrestling snob. I mean, very much in this, in that direct representation of from the racket to the way he dressed of a a country club snob absolutely i think that snobs versus slobs has been a huge kind of part of his story from start to finish both in that like you said he kind of played the stereotypical snob but in other ways i think at various points in his career he's kind of seen himself as a slob in the kind of historical culture war against vince mcmahon and the wwe kind of redefining wrestling. So I think he's seen both sides of it professionally in a way that that's really unique. That culture war, I think, is an important part of the larger idea of the Slobs versus Snobs movies, because they are from a very specific time and place. And the way that Cornette is, they represented the idea of a redeemable antagonist in a way that I think we, by and large, have moved away from, where, like, In most slobs versus snobs movies, uh, the bad guys get their comeuppance, but they're clearly seen as flawed people who aren't necessarily evil. They're just small or weak-minded. Just a little too comfortable in the saddle on the high horse. Like, they were never actual villains who were trying to do actual monstrous things. They were generally just people who were trying to go about their life, but in, like, a snobby, elitist way where they stepped on a lot of people. And so upending that apple cart and having fun that way was really more the object of the movie rather than depicting like a classic battle between good and evil. Yeah, yeah. So like when we talk about slobs versus snobs movies, and there's a ton of them, but there's kind of a a core of them that I think about. And a lot of them happened, uh, at least the first couple, in that late 1970s, early 1980s period, uh, specifically... Animal House comes out in 1978. It is an enormous hit. Enormous hit. It is the second most popular movie in 1978, beating out Superman, but not beating out Grease for the top spot uh, for domestic grosses. And then you have uh, Meatballs, Caddyshack, and Stripes, which happen one year after another, 1979, 1980, and 1981. And those are kind of considered like true Bill Slobs versus Snobs movies where you have this kind of roguish ne'er-do-well who is the leader of a ragtag group of people who are trying to achieve something. Or in the case of Caddyshack, he's in the movie, but that idea is still happening. He's kind of resonated with that brand very well for a very long time, but it starts in the late 1970s. And yeah, I think that uh, trend in American film, it's interesting because it, it's sort of the American form of, of what's called a picaresque novel, which is kind of a classical kind of, of, of European novel that was about someone who was, you know, flawed in some way, but you were still rooting for them because they were fun. You were following the adventures of a flawed person, but it was a really, really good time in a way that you found yourself rooting them for way in, in ways, even though uh, the, the protagonists were often either sort of sexual lotharios or con men of some sorts in in ways that don't uh maybe don't translate to 2018 but the novels at the time were certainly uh the goal is just for them to be really really fun like an adventure story with a person that you'd want to hang out with and that's very much what the snobs versus slobs movies were it was about like creating a social group that you the viewer like wanted to identify with and felt that you could be a part of and then like i said seeing them just you know overtip the apple cart on on people who you legitimately don't like. And that group of people was almost as important. The snobs were almost as important as the slobs. They weren't evil in the way that uh, you'll for wrestling, in a wrestling example, like the four horsemen were. They're just not good people. And I, I think that's what allowed you to have the kind of baby faces that you have, the the Bill Murray's, the Otter from Animal House, played by Tim Matheson, or Bluto from Animal House, uh, played by, uh, wow, I almost said Jim Belushi, John Belushi, <laughs> uh, who are not good people, but they're not evil and they're not stuck up. They're 
dumb, well-meaning people or ne'er-do-wells who are on the side of the angels. And and that's something you see uh, with, like, Hulk Hogan, is this guy who, throughout his career, whether he was Sterling Golding, a Golden or other incarnations of Hogan, was a heel for a really long time, which makes sense. He's a big, blonde guy. And then, all of a sudden, there started to be this development of what's now called Hulkamania, where he started to build himself as a as a, a man of the people, right, Dave? Yeah, absolutely. It would have started in uh, in the AWA up north in the Verngania territory, and it's really interesting because like the AWA was frequently by the wrestlers or by observers of the business in the seventies known as the Country Club territory because of Verngania himself, who owned the company. He was a very well-to-do guy who had this big, huge mansion on the lake and, you know, loved to, uh, they had a very favorable travel and TV schedule because all the guys like to play golf and stuff. So it really was kind of a natural setting for that kind of snobs versus slobs baby, baby face to emerge because you had that culture there. And that country club aesthetic, um, even more so, I think, than Cornette. I know he said he's the quintessential snob uh, in the snob versus slobs movie, but that dynamic I think was best exemplified by Bobby Heenan because he seems like he was more full of shit than Cornette was. Like Cornette actually seemed like a snobby rich kid. Bobby Heenan felt like he was in the context of the show playing up how, like he felt like he was lying, right? Yeah, I mean that's what's interesting about Keenan is is last week we talked about how uh, I, I was uh, going on and on about well hunting and hawing about you know is Jim Cornette the greatest uh, non wrestler and then I said well yes because Heenan was a wrestler first. Um, Cornette had the heat of not being a wrestler of everybody just knowing he was a chubby kid. But like Heenan, the fact that he had been a wrestler, I think it kind of helped him get heat as a manager on the other side because like he said that he you know, was the brain. He said that he was brilliant. He said that he was a genius. But the same fans who he was telling he was a genius, they had also seen him as like a kind of bowling pin shaped wrestler in a Tarzan top with a with a bleach blonde, you know, mop top. Like they knew that he wasn't a genius. They knew that he was another pudgy wrestler who was just saying he was smart. And I think that was a big part of his heat. And he was the manager of Nick Bockwinkle, who again played kind of a country club heel, a guy who was both a jock uh, but also a snob. And that's what you see in the snobs versus slobs movies because, I mean, we're talking a lot about this golden era, like you said, like the Caddyshack stripes era. That's the mid-80s. And really the heels are these kind of Ronald Reagan macho men, right? Like those kind of 1950s or early 60s types where like they're, once again, it's, it, they're literally called the alpha betas in, in Revenge of the Nerds. You know what I mean? Like we're at the top of the heap. We're the people who are going to be in charge. And, and there's this very conscious battle of that kind of uh, Reagan type, uh, which which I think was also at play in wrestling in that battle between Hogan and uh, and Bobby. Yeah, that the elites are the problem, and that like Cornette didn't seem like an elite in a traditional sense, or I should say, he seems like what he's a good old boy. In a way that Bobby Heenan came over, came off as nouveau riche, and nouveau riche is what people are talking about when they talk about, for the most part, like the snobs in these movies are like the kind of again the rich people with bad taste. The that is like a really important characteristic in, and they play they invert it in Caddyshack. Like uh, I was just about yeah. to say that the Rodney Dangerfield character, like he's the one redeeming depiction of a wealthy person, and he ironically is the like nouveau riche pig. Hey everybody, we're all gonna get laid. <laughs> I think that there's this this feeling of like. These people, again, with the Bobby, the brain Heenan, they're either lying about how rich they are, or they are rich in a way that, like, if you were actually rich, you wouldn't talk this way. Like, it was always, I was listening to Cornette a couple of nights ago, um, and he cuts a promo where he's talking about how his mom bought two horses and named them after um, Bobby and Dennis. And they're going to win the Kentucky Derby. But he talks about it like in the middle, in passing, in a sentence. He doesn't like make it the entire like construct of his 
promo where I felt like Bobby Heenan was constantly trying to tell you how rich and well-to-do and how connected he was. And that was, like you said, not only did people go, oh, well, you're not as smart as you're making yourself out to be. They're also like, well, are you as rich as you're making yourself out to be? Or is that also bullshit? Where there was no question, at least to me, that Jim Cornette was from a wealthy family. Yeah, I think you've hit upon a pretty crucial distinction. Because, I mean, Cornette just kind of easily played the spoiled rich kid because that was him. And and that's a certain kind of snob. You know, the, the person who's born on third base and thinks they've hit a triple. I mean, that's still the basis of the Stephanie McMahon character, right? But, uh, or, well, I don't know if it's the basis of the Stephanie McMahon character, but that's a whole other episode. But, uh, but, 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 so that was Cornette, but it's a whole different kind of heat to be the Bobby Heenan, to be the guy who is obsessive about, it's, you're so right to talk about, the network of connections that he's created, especially when he got to the WWF and was doing a lot of commentary. He would talk about that all the time, up till the beginning of Raw. Like, he would talk about having insider information, and he would talk about, having, uh, you know, connections and, and knowing secrets and talking to people in the locker room before. So he was very much like, um, I, I don't know that you, do you watch Game of Thrones, Nick? Do not. All right. So I am two seasons into Game of Thrones, like 10 years behind everybody else or whatever. <laughs> but like, uh, but Bobby Heenan's way more the like Peter Baelish character, the guy who isn't so much a man of action. He's like a backroom information dealer. Someone who derives power, not so much by being on the front line of the power game, but being behind the scenes and being the person who knows everybody's secrets and who, even if- Is that Littlefinger? Yes, yes. And that he, uh, this, you know, picking his spots very carefully and setting other people up to take risks for him. Like he's a certain kind of conniving character. It's a, it's a totally different heat from Cornette, even though they're both- country club snobs. So I think you hit on something great there. What you see uh, in the same time is you have these two kind of character tropes developing or characters based on these tropes developing in Hogan and in Heenan. And it kind of all comes together uh, for Heenan separately from Hogan uh, in 1984. And that is also the year where what we now think of as slobs versus snobs movies hits its peak uh, in terms of commercial success. So you have Ghostbusters, which, while not a traditional slobs versus snobs movies, uh, has Bill Murray, which is important. Uh, William Atherton is a, a quintessential snob. Um, it's not a, because they're fighting ghosts, but there is this element that they are a bunch of idiots and rag, or that ragtag bunch of idiots who, if they can get their shit together, they might be able to win or, in this case, save the day. But everybody thinks they're going to screw up. And you also have Police Academy and Revenge of the Nerds all happen in the same year. It's kind of that delay, that rebound effect of it becoming an incredibly popular. You have basically four top 20, two top five movies that come from this genre uh, in the previous uh, about three to four years before. And in development, you see these movies come out and they're kind of the height of the trope, which is the beginning of Hulkamania. So you have this, this massive culmination of... Uh, and, uh, like a, a troop of movies coming in that all trade in this innocuous anti-authority that no one's going to get hurt because you're going and bucking the system or in the case of Revenge of the Nerds, like it will actually, I, I guess in the case of all of them, it will actually, you're the guys or girls, um, actually, yeah, pretty sure it's all guys on all of those, <laughs> um, who are right, if not necessarily righteous, and you should win. It's anti-authoritarian, I guess, would be the way to, best way to describe it. And I think that Hulkamania is a response to that. Like you said, it's a very Reagan-esque idea. And even beating, like, the Iron Sheik for the championship, uh, and, and in, in a meta sense, replacing the all-American Bob Backlund as the new representative for this company, and in turn, I guess, America through the prism of the WWF it is like not a coincidence, right? Yeah. And I mean, we, we always talk about, we've talked on this show before and it's an off discussed topic, like Hulk Hogan's tactics in the ring. Like he would rake the eyes, he would rake the back, he would use chairs behind the referee's back, et cetera, et cetera. Like he kind of was a cheater, like kind of a chronic cheater, like not, you know what I mean? Not just a once every now and again, like he was a regular cheater and I think that kind of gets to something in these movies that like that when you are right, even if you're not righteous, as you said, when you're right, 
you can do whatever it takes to unseat the people who are wrong and are snobbishly rubbing in your face that they believe you are the one are wrong. Like anything becomes an acceptable way to get over on those people, whether it's like poisoning them by putting stuff in their drinks or their food, whether it's by blowing up the stuff that they love or ruining their romantic relationships. Like once someone has wronged you in that snobbish way, you as the righteous hero have license to do whatever it takes to get whatever amount of revenge is satisfying to you. And if that's not the Hulk Hogan ethos, like I don't know what is. <laughs> that works for me, brother. <laughs> he could not have had a better foil at the time, at the height of Hulkamania, especially uh, in WrestleMania 2. And what to, I think both of us is the actual... Uh, as, as you said, crest of the wave of Hulkamania is WrestleMania 3, but there's this dynamic that they captured in the zeitgeist of slobs versus snobs as an, as an existential idea that Americans in particular were into. And that's why you see, along with the rock and, roll, uh, rock and wrestling connection, this massive uptick in popularity, mainstream popularity in particular, of wrestling it, it, it is hogan but it's what hogan represents and it's heenan but it's also what heenan represents i think that is a classic example of like how the, the baby face and the heel really need each other you know you, you you see that both in these movies that like if you don't have those strong heels then it's just a baby face hangout movie like i would argue ghostbusters kind of start leans in that direction a little bit that the ghostbusters real problem is there's not strong enough heels in terms of human characters like the ghosts are a heelish concept but there isn't that antagonist that ties the movie together whereas caddyshack is like an animal house sorry another great example they have very clear very well drawn uh heels who sell like who you know like judge smiles one of the great heels in movie history like every time he's embarrassed he's gritting his teeth he's foaming at the mouth his his hair gets all must like They've got these great, well-drawn human heels who sell for the baby face. And that's really what keeps both the Snobs vs. Slobs movies and the wrestling angles, you know, interesting. It's not just the, the cool guys who are kind of jerks hanging out and being cool. Because that gets old really, really fast. They desperately need those snobbish heels for it to work. Yeah, and what I think, and I think that's something that Hollywood recognized. That what we liked was people challenging a system or dealing with things that they never thought they would be able to do and and becoming a better version of themselves um and you see it a lot starting in that same year that 1984 year um you have beverly hills cop is actually the number one movie and it feels like on the outside uh, uh slobs versus snobs movie with um eddie murphy's character being the slob, but in reality, that's that's really a fish out of water movie. It's it's about him solving a case more so than anything else. And yeah, you have like the the uh, the ne'er do well part of it, but that was Eddie Murphy playing Eddie Murphy in a way that I think is different than um, Bill Murray playing Bill Murray. I think Bill Murray is playing, for lack of a better term, uh, he's always on, where I think Eddie Murphy is playing a, a very specific character in those movies. I would say that in, in that respect, Bill Murray is kind of the old school wrestler who, who lives in the character and doesn't really want you to know exactly how sane or crazy or goofy or serious he is because he's, he's trying to kayfabe a little bit to, to enhance his performance. Whereas Eddie, yeah, I agree. I mean, Eddie is is very modern in the sense that you know when he's when he's not doing a bit or when he's not in a character, he's not that character at all. He can talk about it frankly. If you ever see like Eddie promoting a movie, even a movie that was all about bending that line, like Bowfinger, which I think is like a not not that that was a snobs versus slobs movie. Well, a little bit if you want to think about it as like the snobs in the movie industry versus the slobs. Anyway. But like when you see Eddie talking about his work or if you see any of his like award ceremony speeches or stuff like that, like, yeah, he is very frank and very breaking the third wall or fourth wall rather and very uh, talking about the craft. Whereas like they're 
if you were to interview Bill Murray about craft, like he would tell you there was no craft. Whether or not he really believes that, that's a whole other thing. But Bill Murray definitely kayfabes in a way that, yeah, Eddie never did. I think people had a, had trouble, trouble might not be the right word, but they were starting to get tired of the ne'er-do-wells being <laughs> never doing well, if that makes sense. Like, I think people got tired of Hogan cheating all the time. I think they got, I think that's why the post WrestleMania three, which is the crest of the wave, as we said, um, the WrestleMania four is not a good WrestleMania, but WrestleMania five main event has its moments because it gives someone to act almost act opposite a Bill Murray in a way that takes away some of Bill Murray's edge, I guess, or that like, that phoniness of uh, of Bill Murray that sometimes hurt his acting. And I think Hogan and Savage works together really well because he, Savage is not right in that feud, but he's not entirely wrong. And I think that was an interesting idea that they never let like develop in a way that you see that movies have a te- uh, do seem to like build off of that idea and show growth in the mid to late 80s in terms of the 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 big comedy movies that hit um they are kind of weirdly about growth in some way where like hogan doesn't get any more adult or better he's the same level of cheating asshole throughout the hulkamanian run yeah, I think that's kind of the dirty secret about Hogan. That's a dirty secret about these a lot of 70s and 80s comedy movies in retrospect is that when you look back on it, we really weren't on a journey at all with Hogan. Like Hogan got to the top within like a month of getting to the territory. Like he won the title within you know, a month, six weeks of getting there. And I mean, other than dropping it in like transparently phony storyline ways just to build up title matches like they did with the million dollar man Andre Deal you know what I mean Uh, he really didn't go on a journey he won the title he had the title and he beat everybody and I think like I said looking back on a lot of these comedy movies of this era they they're still funny and they still have really memorable moments speaking of wrestling moments in quotation marks um but in I don't think they hold up to analysis the way we look at movies today. Number one, because very few like large scale comedy releases are done. Like it used to be that there were multiple comedy releases every Friday and now there's like one a month. But like at the same time, just the expectations we've started to have in terms of storytelling and character development, they're not there in these movies because like the characters are charming and they're entertaining, but they're not deep. They're shallow. These movies are just meant to be fun. And I think people expect, while fun is an expectation at the box office, and I think there's a lot of people who would argue there isn't enough fun, especially in the comedy genre presented at the box office, but like Fun is not the be-all, end-all, and fun is not what sells tickets either to movies or wrestling at the end of the day. Like we were saying earlier, it's conflict and it's depth. And while these movies are really funny and represent their time really well, I just don't think they like artistically or literarily hold up in, in terms of analysis through the 2018 lens. I mean, if you look at that, that fish-out-of-water idea requires you to grow into a better person. Uh, I mean, just to list off a couple of fish out of water movies from that, like 1984 on, you have Beverly Hills cop back to the future spies like us crocodile Dundee back to school, three men and a baby. Good morning, Vietnam secret of my success who framed Roger rabbit twins and big It's like a four year period where all of those are top 10 grossing comedies that all have the same idea of people feeling like we're living in a brave new world. How do I deal with it? And I think what that's what wrestling kind of missed is that there is this period. You look at you look at eighty seven, which is is WrestleMania three, then eighty eight, eighty nine, and then business really starts to drop off. And it's not anybody's fault other than Vince and Hogan's because they refuse to understand that people want growth from their characters and they want new and exciting settings for their characters fish the other exciting thing about fish out of water or like what would happen if like you're overboards and stuff like that 
is this idea of dynamicism, like a dynamic change in what's going on. And wrestling just completely missed out on that for like 10 years. <laughs> oh, for, for multiple stretches of 10 years. I mean, that's, that's part of the cycle of the wrestling business. Make no mistake is staleness. Like whether it was that kind of early nineties period or whether it was like 2004, 2005 to 2008 or nine, you know what I mean? Like there have been long, long stretches of incredible staleness in wrestling. It's definitely part of the cycle. From that, you get this weird thing that happens in the nineties. I guess it's not weird. It makes sense. All movies become franchises or are tied to stars from television that become movie stars. Like there are very few movies that in a way that the number Dave and I were talking about this before we recorded the number one movie in 1970 was love story, which like would not be a movie that was even made today. And it made $106 million in 1970. Like the way that we have made movies has completely changed in terms of like what type of movies get made and how they're marketed and stuff like that. But if you look at the early 90s, you get this weird thing where people kind of want the slobs versus snobs idea, but they want the people on the snobby side to be so irredeemable that it's almost not worth like treating them as human beings. And for me, the the patron saint of that, the the guy I think of when I think of like the mid the early '90s slobs versus snobs movies is an Adam Sandler. He kind of he kind of takes over for, for Bill Murray of that, but he's such a man child that I don't think there was any anything that wrestling could latch onto because I think wrestling works best when it is in the zeitgeist of pop culture without being ahead of the zeitgeist of pop culture. And for that early to mid-90s period, they were just as stuck as movies were in trying to figure out what the next big thing was. Movies turned, like you said, they, they had you know uh, Chevy Chase and Bill Murray and that kind of crop. And when those guys either aged out or kind of stopped selling the tickets or things changed, the movie industry stuck to the SNL pipeline. And you got Sandler and Mike Myers and those SNL guys from the early 90s. I mean, they were really kind of the sons of, you know, Chevy Chase and Bill Murray, where Chevy Chase and Bill Murray had kind of brought that kind of absurdist style to American comedy. And the next generation of that absurdist style was that kind of total reducto absurdum stuff like that, that baby voice that Adam Sandler does in every movie. Um, so like doing that stuff, you know what I mean? Or doing just some of the criminally dumb Mike Myers stuff. like, And that worked in movies for the time because within comedy, you can just have a character and as long as it's kind of an entertaining character in a good situation, it'll work for one movie. You can't build like a whole huge franchise around it, but you know, you can get two hours out of it. But in wrestling, again, they made a similar shift. They kind of went with the kind of same thing that was happening in movies, they went in a kind of sillier direction. And that didn't work because it kind of broke the rules of wrestling. When you get into what you like to call the kind of day job era of the WWF, or even just before that, you have kind of the Jim Hurd era in WCW. And those were all about trying to reflect that, that change towards more absurd silliness that we were seeing in comedy movies. But it just didn't work for wrestling because wrestling, as much as people want it to be everything there's a certain seriousness that wrestling is grounded in because like people's lives are at stake legitimately um and i i think that that silliness shift that happened in movies it happened in wrestling too but it worked for movies and it failed for wrestling yeah the idea of happy gilmore is to sell you on adam sandler's man-childness it's not to sell you on it being a great sports movie so nick what's what's the point of uh if that's the point of happy gilmore nick what is the point of the water boy um and what is the point of billy madison there there is no point to the water boy i think billy madison is actually the one movie that is of the sat of the sandler movies that is uh adult enough like mature enough that it actually pulls off the slobs versus snobs 
because Sandler's Billy Madison sells himself out so hard to make everyone else around him look good that it works. He's not just like, I'm the star, everybody pay attention to me. Although he is like that in the movie, but he has the scene where... Uh, hey, look everybody, Billy peed his pants. Of course I peed my pants. Everybody my age pees their pants. It's the coolest. Really? Yes, you ain't cool unless you pee your pants. Wow. Hey man, Ernie pees pants too. All right. If peeing your pants is cool, consider me Miles Davis. That scene is what makes that movie work as a movie and not just as a collection of comedy scenes where I feel like, and I loved Happy Gilmore when I was a kid and I still like it. It's still a funny movie, but it has no emotional resonance because like even the guy that dies, they kind of are just like, oh, he died. Like like his mentor, the one that brought him to where he is and taught him how to putt and do all of this stuff dies. And they're like, oh, okay, I guess he's dead. Like- yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. That's the part of that movie that when I was a kid, like that aspect of the movie, even though that was one of my favorite movies and I like wore out the VHS of it, that movie or that moment in that movie always made me feel a little weird because he is like, oh, there's already the bit where like his, or the guy's prosthetic arm, which is really busted and cheap looking to begin with, like gets all the fingers broken off of it. And then he gets like, he like falls out the window and stuff. And I just remember even as a kid being like, that is like, mean in a way that jars me out of the rest of the movie it, it was same with um jane austen's mafia i remember that was a movie that was loaded with those moments where like every time you were in the comedy movie they would just do something that was either like so off the charts dumb or so off the charts coarse that you were just like oh that made my stomach feel a little weird for a second I, i'm not a fan of this movie yeah yeah and I, I think what they they sold out their audience in a way that like it weirdly, weirdly reminds me of having Bret Hart lose the title to Bob Backlund so that you could give it to Kevin Nash. It was like just creating emotional resonance, like dropping an emotional bomb to create emotional resonance later on instead of earning that emotional bomb and then dealing with the emotional resonance afterwards. And like, to me, that's one of the things that as somebody watching hurt the most I had invested in the Bret Hart character and to see him lose the way he did infuriated me and not in a good way, not in like a wrestling way. And I like, this is dumb. It shouldn't work like this kind of way. It all gets back to my, uh, my famous Brock Lesnar story from 2002 when I stopped watching wrestling, right? I was the person who wanted to watch the Scotty Too Hottie versus Dean Malenko match. And when Brock came down and, you know, beat both of them up, I believe it or not was the person who was like really thrown for a loop by that and offended by that. And I was hurt that he had kind of upset the narrative that I was used to. There was a certain way that comedy movies work. Stuff's supposed to be funny. There's a certain way that wrestling works. There's supposed to be some sort of structure and these are the guys having the match. But when you have those moments that kind of break the genre, I think you do, that's when you start running up against uh, let's say limited effectiveness. Cause even though Brock was a great talent, using him in that kind of genre-breaking way turned people off. They didn't earn Brock Lesnar. Again, they just showed up and were like, look at Brock Lesnar. Of course he can beat the shit out of these guys. And it's like, well, then why don't you have him beat the shit out of guys that do not deserve to get the shit beat out of him, but that it doesn't look like he should be able to manhandle instead of having him punch down. Like, there is no reason to kill Chubbs in Happy Gilmore. There's no reason to do it at all but they do it to like get a rise out of you and to have a funny joke where he's afraid of the the crocodile that ki that took his hand it's like why the f why would that seem like a good idea to you and you killed your friend and your mentor like you should be a lot more emotionally scarred by this than you are and and i feel like with lesnar when he came in and and when you give up you give up by playing your hand so hard, it ruins any kind of emotional investment because you're like, well, if you're going to just change the rules of what I'm watching that quickly, 
why am I bother watching the previous hour or the previous 10 years or the previous 20 years? If you're just going to change the way the entire system works and in, in a movie, an hour and a half movie, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, this, this scene sucks. But like in a wrestling match, you're like, what the fuck? And that's what happened in the mid 90s. They couldn't figure out how to earn back whatever they were going to be. They hadn't figured out the new thing the new um, trope. Because, like, Adam Sandler movies are Adam Sandler movies. Yes, they're Snobs versus Slobs movies. And yes, they have a bit of, like, what would happen if. But they are Adam Sandler vehicles. That's exactly. That's that's what I meant when I said the whole thing about, well, what's the point of Waterboy then? What's the point of Billy Madison then? Like, they're just vehicle movies for shtick. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think the... The, the both wrestling and film had that happen, but film figured out a way to fix it. And wrestling, it took a lot longer. Like, and they didn't go in the same direction. Like, um, for me, the the sobs versus snobs trope dies and is rebirthed. I guess, and not to get too highfalutin, in uh, Rushmore, Wes Anderson's Rushmore, because the slob and the snob are the same person and it's an actual movie. It's an actual film. I'm putting that in air quotes. That is basically a slobby kid trying to make it amongst the better quote unquote, better wealthier people has Bill Murray in it. So obviously that automatically makes it a slobs versus snobs movie, but he is actually one of the slobs and he, his, being a rich industrialist messes with his head. It's almost as though the character that Bill Murray played in the early eighties movies was now forced to like, had seen himself that character, those characters from those movies in Max Fisher, the main character from Rushmore. And I think that like refreshed both to me, both comedy and it didn't make like a crazy amount of money, but it was an incredibly important movie uh, for Bill Murray's career for a bunch of people, but also for the idea of like what type of weird offbeat comedy, because you have another uh, movies a couple of years after that come to mind, but like Napoleon Dynamite, those type of movies, which your mileage may vary on, but like that idea of a, a person who contains multitudes and we're supposed to like take a journey with that person. It combines both the slobs versus snobs and all of the previous stuff and gives us this new identity of uh, what a, a certain type of comedy movie can be. Also, Wes Anderson becomes like a well-known comedy director, though his movies aren't necessarily like comedies in a traditional sense. I think that what you see with that is the, the like actual passing of the torch in the way that Adam Sandler movies were kind of like a forced the Adam Sandler movies were WrestleMania six with Hogan and warrior were like warrior warriors, just like a guy that runs run like a man child that runs down to the ring, beats people up, talks all crazy and then runs back. And that's basically what Adam Sandler was. And I think what, and not to like, this isn't an exact analogy, but I think what Max represents in Rushmore is this like, this idea that you could evolve that character, not necessarily the way that the WWF evolved uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, but like that there could be a a new archetype in the comedy world. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, Rushmore, it's so interesting. I'm glad we brought up this movie because, um, I'll, I'll guess I, I, I won't even try to frame this. I'm just going to jump into the middle of this. So Bill Murray is almost exactly the same age as my parents. He's actually a couple of years younger. Those kind of like older baby boomers. And I think Rushmore really is a reflection on how both baby boomers and young Gen Xers slash old millennials approach this snobs versus snobs conflict and how it's something that's sort of analogous between the two generations and that like Bill Murray, like you said, is the quintessential actor from those snobs versus slobs movies in the way that a lot of those older baby boomers, they were like hippies or they were very progressive, socially liberal out there folks in like the late sixties, early seventies. But by the 
But, you know, 20, 30 years later, those people, and like I said, these are people my parents' age, this is my parents' generation I'm talking about, a lot of those people became doctors and lawyers and business executives, as the song goes, um, in spite of their, uh, you know, in spite of their young liberaldom. And I think that's what we see with the Bill Murray character in Rushmore, that he's the guy of that generation who fancied himself the young rebel. And now suddenly he's the rich asshole, right? He hates his own kids. He looks at his privileged sons and he like hates them because they represent like everything that he didn't really want to be when he got rich and successful. But here's my advice to the rest of you. Take dead aim on the rich boys, get them in the crosshairs and take them down. Just remember, they can buy anything, but they can't buy backbone. Don't let them forget that. Thank you. Then on the other hand, you have the Jason Schwartzman kind of Max character who represents, like I said, the the sort of uh, younger Gen X or older millennial starting to grapple with those same snobs versus slobs issues and how we, our generation, or people slightly older than us, we kind of see it you know, we're fighting our own class struggle, um, but, but a lot of us, especially those of us who are privileged white people like Max, uh, see it through this very bizarre veneer that makes it possible for us to, like, grapple the issues directly. And I know that was just a very long-winded analysis of that whole movie, but, but I, I think it's to your point of how that really is both a snobs versus slobs movie in its own way and a movie that's really about the whole snobs versus slobs philosophy and how it's a cross-generational class struggle issue. Yeah, and, and there are definite, like the first snob versus slob movie in earnest, the one that TV Tropes talks about, is The Odd Couple. And I'll tell you what, I, I, Dave will probably include this in the, the follow-up notes, the follow-up files. Walter Matthau is in a movie where he is trying to choose between Ingrid Bergman and a young Goldie Hawn, like, as a sex symbol. So, like, <laughs> I don't know why I brought that up, but I, like, Cactus Flower is the name of the movie. And the dynamic, I guess what I'm trying to say is the dynamic of what qualified as a leading man really changed in the last 50 years. Like Jason Schwartzman is an oddball looking guy, but he's also like a normal good looking person. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't see the people. And I think Stone Cold Steve Austin, who, who to me is like kind of the, the counterculture figure uh, for wrestling in the way that Max kind of is where he, he's like a genuinely talented person who's like a, a bit of an iconoclast. Uh, Steve Austin's like a really good looking guy in a way that like early seventies and late seventies and early eighties actors didn't have to be. And I think that changed the dynamic is you kind of had to look the part for, and they didn't have anybody in the first half of the 90s that really looked the part, but you have this guy. And to me, Stone Cold is still doing the like slob versus snob idea, but the snob idea has evolved into this like, not, I guess like conglomerate, a conglomerate or like a, like a, like it's not a monolith, but it's this, I, this giant idea. It's this apparatus. It's this giant apparatus that we have to deal with that like slobs are basically the same kind of people, but better looking now in movies and that the people they have to compete with are more evolved, like evil versions of the snobs they had to deal with. The movies of the eighty, the late seventies and early to mid eighties, and I'm not—I don't think I'm breaking new ground uh, here. Were incredibly um, patriarchal, like they were dude movies about dudes and why dudes were awesome and girls were either not great or completely secondary to the point. Yeah, I mean, if you don't think that boys rule was sort of an important, at least part of the subtext of those movies, look at the reaction to the remake of Ghostbusters with female characters. Like there is a real aggressive male ownership over those movies. Yeah, yeah, they were target. Porky's Ugh. is not quite a slobs versus snobs movie, but that is like, that is one of the like 
teen movies that these movies, the slobs versus non movies are kind of like a higher form of, for lack of a better term. They're not like better, but they're like a more evolved version of it. They're a more pointed version, I guess you would say of that kind of teen movie. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of these movies have the Ghostbusters when they're remade or they're they're reinterpreted or they're reapplied to different stories that the ones that do are successful and the ones that aren't literally just like direct to video national lampoons shit are the ones that tell the story from a unique perspective. You see it with like Selena de Laurenta, she she has a stable, right? She is like a she or at the very least is an advocate and agent for the kinds of wrestlers that a Bobby Heenan or a, to a lesser extent, a Jim Cornette would have been the advocate for, right? Oh yeah, definitely. And she's embroiled in a feud right now with Conan because he as a male has stepped into her realm and is stealing her clients. And part of his pitch is that he is a man and knows the business better because of his experience as a man. So it, that's playing out very explicitly on MLW. Yeah, and, and I think that's where wrestling has kind of caught up. But there was this this period where, like, comedy movies... Comedy movies have... I don't want to say they've stopped being made, but they're... <laughs> they basically stopped being made. And I think part of that is it's very hard to create... And wrestling and comedy are similar in the sense that they are created specifically to garner a specific... Well, not a specific, specific reaction, but... They want you to laugh at a comedy in the same way they want you to cheer the baby face. And there is a desired response that is inherent to the construct of these shows. Uh, sorry, movies. And to the construct of comedy movies and to wrestling that doesn't exist in a lot of other mediums or genres or things like that. Like there is this idea that you have to be on the pulse of your audience, whatever your audience might be. And what you see with the late 90s WWF and and late 90s and, and mid to late 90s um, comedies is they become action comedies. You almost lose completely this like class warfare dynamic and it's replaced and the fish out of water thing eventually like evolve, evolves out of into just like straight action comedies with famous people pairing up to be like, and that's that's partially the rush hour. The rush hour phenomenon. I, rush hour is a great movie, but rush hour is always the movie I think of, and Brett Ratner is always the director I think of when you talk about that transition towards the action comedy. Because it kills two birds with one stone in the same way that like anti heroes in wrestling and these like the the Stone Coals and to a lesser extent the Rocks are allowed to be different things to different people while still representing a kind of fundamental, not truth, but a fundamental archetype that you can root for where like the rock is kind of the like asshole jock that like will beat up the bullies for you, but it might also make fun of you. But in a way that you're like, well, we're really friends. We're stone cold, just an asshole, but he's our asshole. And I, I think that they they kind of got, and they also had Triple H, which who was the right kind of that right kind of larger and and um, fitting man that larger than life, all controlling heel. And I, I think that's something that like is harder to do in a comedy, uh, but became the basis for most movies in like the entire world is always like, there's this big evil organization and this one guy who has to stop them or this one ragtag group of people who has to stop this incredibly evil corporation or evil monster or evil disaster or evil villain. Like that's what all movies have become. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, everything is the epic now. Absolutely. Or at least everything that gets like a major release. I think there's no question to it. And it's just because it's a proven formula. And I mean, that's one of the great arguments about wrestling. I mean, there are people to tie this back like Jim Cornette who believe like, Hey, there's a proven roadmap. There's a proven formula. We generally know how to do this wrestling thing. And if we just stick to what we know and the tropes, we'll all be more successful with it. And lots of people will be able to succeed. Whereas on the other hand, you have kind of the other camp wherein the idea is like, no, 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 you have to evolve the thing. You have to 
break it down and rebuild it. We have to think beyond the classic tools. So again, we see this kind of change in wrestling and this evolution in movies. And like we said in the early 90s, sometimes the path is divergent or sometimes it's the same and they get vastly different results. Yeah, and in the, the early 90s, the, the inability to move away from the thematic ideas that propelled the 80s. The 90s were just a weird time because we talked about this during the Enron episode. They were just this growth period. Everything was growing. Nobody knew where anything was going. That was before the internet became a thing in the late 90s where it just blew everything wide open and people got lost in the shuffle. And I think we came out and part of it was a, a post 9-11 focusing of playing it safe for a number of years to not be too offensive, to not move things too far from where we were because everybody wanted to feel comfortable. And you've seen in the last 10 years or so um, that A, the way that television has evolved into a prestige idea and the ease, ease of uh, release has changed the way that comedy and wrestling has kind of developed because comedy movies don't take a lot to produce unless they take a lot to produce. In other words, what I'm saying is like either you get lucky with a very small group of people who are like not particularly well known, who have a huge monster hit movie, or you get incredibly famous people to be in a comedy together. Like there's really no in between in terms of like, or no, there's not no in between, but those are really the two ways you make serious money. Yeah, and I think you can even see that struggle happening within the WWE. Like in NXT, you have the very carefully built shows where they cherry pick the best wrestlers from around the world and bring them in, you know, to to wrestle with each other and to kind of build their equity as stars at the top level in the WWE, and it's all very patient and very paced, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have the main roster where it's like, let's get Triple H and Stephanie and Kurt Angle and Ronda Rousey in a match. And it's Ronda Rousey's first match ever. And it's the main event at WrestleMania or one of the main events at WrestleMania. Like even within the WWE, that dichotomy exists. Wrestling itself, and not necessarily WWE, because that is a big studio. When we think about like movie studios, that is what you would consider like a big like Warner Brothers level studio of wrestling production. And then you have all of these different wrestling things that you can find all over the place. So you don't necessarily need the big tentpole pay-per-views of the WWE. You can watch random New Japan shows, random PGW shows, random ROH shows, random random shows, random Beyond shows, random MLW shows. You can watch a lot of different things and not commit in the way that you had to when you were in the 80s, especially in the 70s and the 80s. I'm going and spending eight to seven, five dollars, however much it was at the time on this movie. And I'm sitting in this thing for two hours and I'm going to love this movie because I feel obligated to, but also because I don't get to interact with this kind of comedy or this kind of world building or these kind of people in my everyday life. And I think comedy has evolved into this many splintered thing where people make weird and not to, not in a way to like make him, uh, not in a way to put him on a pedestal, but Louis C.K. was one of the first people that was like, hey, I can create movies and distribute them through my website. And that's really changed the dynamic of a lot of things that you now have people at home creating comedy and putting it on YouTube, putting it, getting Netflix deals. Look at Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler now makes Netflix movies. He is in partnership with Netflix. And what you don't see necessarily, and you do see them because it's Adam Sandler and he does have his like picadillos. He has actually done different kinds of movies because he now has the freedom of just like, I don't have to worry about getting butts and seats at theaters. I just have to put these things up and people who want to see my stuff can see my stuff. And I think that has really changed both comedy and wrestling is this, the, the distribution of it has become, they couldn't necessarily transition from the monoculture, the mono monoculture, the pre cable mono or the like early pre to early cable monoculture to that like direct TV style, like splinter then to the internet and they're just starting to get back to 
what makes people laugh or what makes people excited and want to go see a match and cheer for the bad uh, cheer for the good guy and boo the bad guy and i i think that's because they're no longer these gatekeeping ideas and you see it with women's wrestling and with wrestlers of color that they're starting to get more and more shine and more and more promotions i think the all-in main event had uh, three or four lucha libre performers like they really have kind of built out this a much more international or much more varied diverse both audience but the performers themselves are a lot more diverse than they used to be. Wrestling has at times been ahead and at times behind and at times both at the same time when it comes to representation. And I think that with the upcoming women's uh, evolution or revolution pay-per-view, whatever the hell it's called, they use those two words interchangeably all the time, although I never know which one they're saying. Um, well, when with that pay-per-view, I think we have kind of the first attempt to what you are kind of saying is almost like a, a new style conception of, you know, of, of wrestling in the same way that there's this new conception of comedy with, although there's still the same gatekeepers, at least for now in the wrestling business, uh, they seem to have finally adjusted their expectations to be a little bit more in line with what people, you know, actually want to see and how the culture has actually changed. Now that we've solved both world hunger and modern representation in movies and wrestling, I, I feel like it's time to uh, ask the question I've been thinking about this entire episode, which is, which wrestler do you think would make, could go back and have their character, and probably them, uh, but they don't have to be like a great actor, not that anybody from those movies was a great actor, <laughs> either a slob or a snob. Like, who do you think would work as an archetype in one of those movies? All right, I have a slob for you. And it's actually someone who I don't compliment often, so uh, mark the date on your calendar, folks. I'm going to say someone who would make a great slob would be Dean Ambrose. Um, I think that he has that kind of everyman quality, that kind of wild card quality that, that really fits in with those movies. And I think I've, I've accused him in the past of being Donald Duck, you know, making the <laughs> sound and, and, and spinning his fist around to fight somebody. But I, I think that he's kind of in Sandler mode, like he's in goofy 90s mode. And if he could just rein himself back to like 80, 80s slobs versus snobs mode, I think that Dean Ambrose could be a, a really, really great wrestler and a really great character in one of those movies. Yeah, he, that is, that is amazing. That is so much but i did not have any fucking clue who you, like this is a legit shoot reaction for me that's really good <laughs> um yeah everything else is kayfabe all other reactions on the show are kayfabe but that one was real nick and i are huge phonies <laughs> uh, mine is the miz who to me is like the if i were to create a modern slobs versus snobs movie he would be my snob like he works perfectly as that character of the guy who doesn't really deserve to be here if he deserves to be here it's because of his like all of the bullshit all of the faking he did until he made it there's this he reminds me both of a like a uh, gable from um revenge of the nerds and of a bobby heenan where it's again that like you don't you're talented, maybe. You're smart, maybe. But you are way too full of yourself for anybody's own good. And, like, you deserve to be knocked down a peg. And I, I think a I would probably, probably watch a Dean Ambrose versus The Miz WWE Films movie. I don't want to put that... I don't want to speak it into existence. <laughs> But I feel like that is something I might be willing to watch. So if WWE films are listening, make the movie happen. Oh, yeah. I think we've arrived at the correct answer here, Nick. And uh, speaking of correct answers, you know, this is something that in the past I've been kind of cavalier about. But I want to give you credit for always being just steadfast and upright in your belief that the correct answer is to for folks to rate this podcast five stars. <laughs> We've got to spread the message out there. Last week, I told you that the power of our show was inside you and that you could use that power to tell your friends. And I hope you did. I hope you found three friends for whom that message would be really meaningful, really impactful, and you improve their life by spreading the love of how wrestling explains the world. But I'm here to tell you this week 
But that power, it's not just there to help you tell your friends. That power has also charged you up with so much greatness that you have the ability to evangelize to total strangers. And you don't have to go door to door. You don't have to, you know, set up a stand with a side and a, a change jar like you're Lucy from Peanuts telling people about how wrestling explains the world for nickels. You don't have to do that at all. You can get right on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you use, and you can review us five stars. That will tell strangers all over the world, all over the known universe about how stinking good this podcast is, how much you love it, and how much you know it's a life-changing solution for folks out there. So this week, with the power vested in you, with the power vested in me, see how I did that? Because I had power vested in me and then I vested it in them. Do you like that? That, 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 <laughs> that vesting? With the power vested in you by the power vested in me, I want you to go forth and get on your podcast app and review us five stars. Five stars, like Nick has always said, not four, not three, not honest feedback like I've evangelized for in the past, but five stars, as Brother Nick has always correctly pointed out. Did you have any plugs this week? I mean, you always have plugs. Do you have any special plugs, like a, like a, a guy, like a Chavo Guerrero level plugs? Well, as always, I'm coming at you at Bosley Levels. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. That's my name, Writes Junk, as in stuff. Uh, also, check out the latest uh, roundtable over at the Wrestling Estate. Uh, on last Friday, we talked about the Hell in a Cell, the history of the structure. Great matches, great memories, great quote unquote moments, including a, a brief rant for me on the term moment uh, in pro wrestling. Uh, so definitely check that one out if you're a fan of the WWE, if you're anticipating the upcoming pay-per-view. Check out that Wrestling Estate Roundtable on the history of Hell in a Cell. And if you are anticipating that pay-per-view, and I say this as the biggest WWE mark in history, could you write a comment on the Wrestling Estate article explaining why you're excited about this pay-per-view, which is one of three in like two and a half weeks? <laughs> Ugh, it's like the worst part of the WWE calendar. Yeah, it's really... It was already shitty before then. It is... I am, like, excited for Hell in a Cell. That's what you had full, we're heading full steam ahead into Monday Night Football season. Yeah, <laughs> dude, it is a nightmare. I, like, and I like all of the people involved in... All, I could do without the Super Showdown, but, like, if it were just the Hell in a Cell and Evolution, I'd feel way different. But, like, that, the Super... Anyways, so great plugs. Read the article. Very good. Great as always. Dave's rant on moments should not be missed. For me, you can check me out at The Nickster, T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. You can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. You can also check out the video for this, which will not be part of the conversations we have here, but a separate conversation. That will be released tomorrow at noon on, uh, will be Tuesday. And definitely check Dave's follow-up files, which are my favorite part of doing the show. Maybe kick us a few shekels for hosting, but really for the Dave's follow-up files, which uh, I'm going to spend more time plugging than anything of my own. And as Dave mentioned uh, in our request for testimonials, uh, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play Store, and if you can on Pocket Cast. I, I want to know who is picking up all these podcasts from Pocket Cast because we get a lot of downloads for them. God in bless. My, in my head, Nick, Pocket Cast is a podcasting app for the uh, Pocket Station that came with uh, with PlayStation 1. Or not, not that came with it, but that was built in the later development days of, of PlayStation 1. Not, not Game Boy Pocket or Game Boy Color Pocket? No, 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 the Pocket Station. They're they're doing the one little Chocobo side quest, or I say Chocobo where people jump on me. They're doing the one little Chocobo side quest from Final Fantasy VIII. The, like, Tamagotchi gimmick. Oh, that thing. Oh, no. Boo. <laughs> Don't boo us, though. Give us five stars uh, or five stars. Or if you're feeling like you want to be honest, five stars, that would be uh, the best way to go would definitely be five stars. Uh, how many stars should they give, Dave? Five stars. I mean, if they're listening, they like it, right? You would have turned it off a long time before now. We're all very different people. We're not Watusi. We're not Spartans. We're Americans with a capital A, huh? You know what that means? Do you? That means that our forefathers were kicked out of every decent country in the world. We are the wretched refuse. We're the underdog. We're mutts. Here's proof. His nose is cold. But there's no animal that's more faithful 
that's more loyal, more lovable than the mutt. Who saw Old Yeller? Who cried when Old Yeller got shot at the end? Nobody cried when Old Yeller got shot, I'm sure. I cried my eyes out. So we're all dog faces. We're all very, very different. But there is one thing that we all have in common. We were all stupid enough to enlist in the Army. We're mutants. There's something wrong with us, something very, very wrong with us. Something seriously wrong with us. We're soldiers, but we're American soldiers. We've been kicking ass for 200 years. We're 10 and 1. Now, we don't have to worry about whether or not we've practiced. We don't have to worry about whether Captain Stillman wants to have us hung. All we have to do is to be the great American fighting soldier that is inside each one of us. Now, do what I do and say what I say and make me proud. Fall in? Yeah!